will hear the Gospel of John first in German, and then Dr. Coley will read it in English. The Holy Gospel according to John. Da sprach nun Jesus zu den Juden, die an ihn glaubten. So, ihr bleiben werdet an meiner Rede, so seid ihr in meinem rechten Jünger und werdet die Wahrheit erkennen und die Wahrheit wird die Wahrheit erkennen und die Wahrheit wird euch frei machen. Da antworteten sie ihm, wir sind Abrahams Samen, sind niemals jemandes Knecht gewesen. Wie sprichst du denn? Ihr sollt frei werden? Jesus antwortete ihnen und sprach, Wahrlich, wahrlich, ich sage euch, wer Sünde tut, der ist der Sündeknecht. Der Knecht aber bleibt nicht ewiglich im Hause, der Sohn bleibt ewiglich. So euch nun der Sohn frei macht, so seid ihr recht frei. The Gospel of the Lord. I've never read the gospel a second time after someone else before. Uh, the Holy Gospel according to John. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying, you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. The Gospel of the Lord. There's a common theme in our readings today, a theme of freedom, freedom from sin, from our slavery, freedom from our labors to be good enough, and freedom for works on behalf of others. This freedom is liberation, it's stillness, it's rest, it's reception. This notion of freedom emerged 505 years ago today. Legend has it that an obscure Augustinian monk unwittingly upended 1,500 years of religious, political, and social order when he rather innocently posted a set of 95 theological arguments on the door of a parish church in a small, out-of-the-way town in the east of Germany. As the story goes, this young monk intended only to invite debate a disputation, a type of intellectual sparring with his colleagues, meant to discern and clarify truth. The result of this unwitting act was a David and Goliath story of biblical proportions. For four years later, when this lowly monk was called to recant his message of freedom on pain of death and damnation, he supposedly stood up to Pope and Emperor, declaring boldly, Here I stand, I can do no other. Words that uh, we don't think he actually said, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, myths have to be myths. So, 
Religion scholars, such as myself, refer to this type of narrative as a religious myth. A hagiography, or story of the life of a saint, told in overstated, somewhat supernatural terms, to build identity and shared purpose within a religious community. Luther's story is full of these types of supernatural moments. For example, after his death, effigies of the reformer uh, were reported to withstand fire. Burning at the stake would be no challenge for this incombustible Luther. While the more historically accurate account of Luther's actions on this day may lack some of the luster and drama of the legend, by all accounts, it, is more, it more firmly reflects the nature of Luther's social and pastoral concerns, his bravery in pursuing them, and perhaps a little, his unscrupulous tactics for making his message known. The guy really knew how to stick his finger in somebody's like sensitive spot. So with that, let's have a take two of the events of this historic day. On this day, 505 years ago, the historical record shows an obscure Augustinian monk and professor of Bible sent a letter with two attachments to the highest ecclesiastical authority in the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation setting off a series of events that would upend the European order and ripple across the various histories the world over. The author of this fateful letter was Martin Luther. His recipient was Albrecht of Brandenburg, Archbishop of Magdeburg and Archbishop of Mainz. The two titles that Albrecht held gave him incredible power over the lives of common people in Germany. It armed him with unwieldy opportunities to increase his own wealth and supplied him with hegemonic power in the form of voting rights within the Holy Roman Empire. He was an elector. An elector was one of the highest princes of the Holy Roman Empire, and together, the seven electors were directly responsible for appointing the emperor. Four of the seven electors were secular princes, one of whom happened to be Luther's own prince, John Friedrich. The other three electors were ecclesiastical, one of these being the Arch Archbishopric of Mainz. So the author, or the audience of Luther's letter, an ecclesiastical elector, was well positioned within Rome to further his message of reform, to really pick at this scab. This was a strategic choice. Luther's audience was strategic in another way. Albrecht's privileged position was not earned, but purchased. Medieval canon law actually forbade that any individual could hold two ecclesiastical offices. To circumvent this limitation, Albrecht bought his electoral power by paying an exorbitant fee of 24,000 ducats to Rome for an exemption from the strictures of canon law. This is nearly $3.6 million in today's terms. To fund this pricey venture, Albrecht received a loan from the Fugger family, 
a banking enterprise who took over the wealth and power of the Medicis at the start of the 16th century to become one of the wealthiest families in human history. Wealth that continues in, in the lines of German nobility today. Actually, the family still lives in, in Baden-Württemberg. To repay his loan to the Fuggers, Albrecht used proceeds from the so-called Peter's Indulgence, which had been instituted in 1506 to support the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and had drained the German economy. Pope Leo X renewed the indulgence and in 1515 granted Albrecht permission to sell it within his two German bishoprics, Magdeburg and Mainz. His intermediary with the common people who would bear this spiritual taxation was no other than John Tetzel, the infamous seller of indulgences whose slogan, as soon as a coin in the coffer does ring, a soul from purgatory shall spring, reverberated throughout the Reformation. In a time when plague continued to cycle through the land and nearly half the European population had died in less than a hundred years. An indulgence was a tempting price to pay for assurance of salvation. Albrecht's power was built on the spiritual anxieties of the German people and their physical suffering. Albrecht lacked jurisdiction to sell Peter's indulgence in Luther's region of Saxony. However, as a native of the bishopric of Magdeburg, Tetzel's infamous slogan would have been familiar to Luther and those he loved, who continued to live under Albrecht's electorship. In his letter to the powerful Albrecht, the young Martin Luther describes his pastoral con concerns for the souls of those who believed in the power of indulgences. He wrote, I do bewail the people's completely false understanding, gleaned from these preachers. These poor souls believe that if they were to purchase these letters of indulgence, they would then be assured of their salvation, and that the graces of indulgences are so great that no sin is of such magnitude that it cannot be forgiven. Likewise, through these indulgences, a person is freed from every penalty and guilt. O oh, great God, in this way, excellent Father, souls committed to your care are being directed to death, being made secure and unafraid through those false tales and promises linked to indulgences, which confer upon souls nothing for the benefit of their salvation. Luther's letter, written out of concern for the lives and livelihood of, livelihoods of the saints in Germany, was signed and dated strategically to reinforce his message. From Wittenberg, 1517, on the eve of All Saints' Day. Included with the letter were two attachments, one of which was Luther's Disputation on the Power of Indulgences, or 95 Theses. The 95 Theses directly challenged the financial cash flow that sustained Albrecht's personal power. Luther's letter was actually saved to history and is currently housed in the Royal Archives of Sweden. 
On the back are notations written by Albrecht's secretary, which tells the story of what happened next. Albrecht's advisors received Martin's letter on November 17th, one day before Luther's birthday, actually. And two weeks later, they sent it on to the archbishop who was traveling at the time, who reviewed the letter and its attachments and forwarded them to Rome on December 13th with instructions to begin a formal process against Luther. Luther's reformation did not so much start through the miraculous explosion of some random arguments posted on a random village church door, but rather through a strategic, targeted, courageous, and more than a little dangerous intervention of an otherwise common person with people who were in power for the benefit of those with less power than himself. Luther spent the, th the two years prior to this letter to Albrecht translating, studying, and glossing, or writing commentary, on Paul's letter to the Romans, which he then taught to students every Monday and Friday morning at 6 a.m. He did this for nearly two years, just like professors Men, Adams, and Rossing, but maybe a little earlier in the day. Uh, Luther taught on our passage today from Romans 3 during the winter months at the end of 1515 and start of 1516. These verses from Romans 3 have a direct bearing on Luther's opposition to indulgences and give us a glimpse into the freedom concept that would come to mark his and our Reformation theology. Luther's study of Romans 3 and the medieval commentaries that that he engaged to uh, probe it, shaped his notions of law and faith. In Romans 3.20, and, and then also in Luther's commentary, we encounter the harsh reality of law. Paul writes, no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law. Instead, we get the ugly truth of ourselves. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's like very uplifting. Luther explains this, this, uh, this teaching using moral psychology. Whenever a precept or prohibition, his concept of law, meets us, we feel our, our will hostile toward it. Let us recognize the fact that we do not love the good, but rather evil. By this very fact, we recognize that we are wicked sinners, since a person is not a sinner unless she is unwilling to fulfill the law. This bristling that Luther's describing, when we feel God's command, which, by the way, for Luther is God, right? The law is God, um, as God's divine will. This feeling, this bristling, this is bondage, right? That we don't want to do this thing. This is enslavement to the demands and the expectations from one outside of ourselves, and expectations and demands that we cannot actually meet. Luther's freedom message comes in the response to this bristling. It's a call to stillness, to rest in the assurance of another. Paul calls this the law of faith. 
For both Paul and for Luther, this law of faith is one of reception, receiving another's works. Luther's description of this concept in his Romans lectures is rich and points us in another direction. He says, the principle of works says, do what I command. But the principle of faith says, give what you command. The subject of the sentence is inverted from the divine command to a request from the soul. What Luther says next is what I want to emphasize on this Reformation Day, however. He says, the people of faith say, I cannot do the law, I have not done it, but give me what you command. I have not done it, but I desire to do it. And because I cannot, I beg and beseech you to give me the power whereby I might do it. For this reason, the whole life of the faithful is nothing else but prayer, seeking, and the labor of their bodies, always seeking and striving to be made righteous. In 1515, Luther doesn't detail what is entailed in this daily labor of our bodies as we seek to be, be made righteous. And in fact, this topic is still pretty hotly debated among Luther scholars. But we know from other writings what he had in mind, even if he, it remained a little fuzzy with the details. What he meant was freedom in love and service to the neighbor. Luther developed this idea out of an Augustinian trope that was popular in the Middle Ages, Christ as sacrament and example. As sacrament, Christ gave himself for the sins of, of another. As example, he presented himself as an outward working of the law, demonstrating what it meant to live out the law in one's life with others. Christ as example is an image that you and I could look at, study, and imitate. Luther understood this imitation in very Christological terms. It's a life of self-sacrifice in service to others. Christ sacrificed himself physically, but also socially by intervening with those in power on behalf of the lowly and oppressed lifting up their needs and defending them even at his own cost. This is what the Reformation was all about, and this is why it still matters for us today as modern individuals, as Christians, here in Chicago at LSTC, and in any other variety of contexts in which we find ourselves. The Reforma Reformation message is one of freedom, not law gospel, sorry, a lot of Luther scholars just rolled over in their graves. Not justification by grace alone through faith alone, though that is certainly a very important basis, but freedom, right? That justification by grace alone through faith alone forms the freedom, but the freedom is the point, right? It's the takeaway. That we have freedom from bondage and we are free for service. This is reception and imitation. Reception of the liberating gifts of another, Christ, and imitation of those to pay them forward. This is what Luther was doing when he sent that fateful letter to Albrecht. Though his lifelong legacy is 
kind of a mixed bag, if we're honest. His actions on this day, 505 years ago, set a precedent and a call for each of us. On the eve of All Saints Day, he threw down to history a gauntlet that staked his own life and salvation, quite literally, for the salvation, economic, and psychological well-being of those with less power than himself. Despite his relative anonymity and his own limited power, he saw the suffering of souls around him. And knowing he would likely burn at the stake, literally, he used the tools at his disposal through his life as a monk and an academic and went to bat for others. So my challenge to you on this eve of All Saints Day, 2022, 505 days uh, after the fact, is to find a quiet moment to reflect. What are the privileges and opportunities that are afforded to you that you can use to go for bat, to bat for others? And what specifically can you do to improve the situation that you see? So here's to a Reformation Day of service and love for others, following both Christ's example and to live out the spirit of this Lutheran tradition that we receive today.